If you haven't had an opportunity to explore your bulletin, there's an insert in there explaining this course that I'm going to be teaching. I actually am an adjunct professor in the philosophy department at Boise State, but it's not in the philosophy department. It's um, at the Biblical Study Center, which there's a QR code uh, on that sheet inside your bulletin that'll explain it. Uh, students uh, can come free. Uh, there's some place for community people too, uh, if you're beyond your student years. Um, it costs a little bit, but it's, uh, I think it would really be interesting. It's how to thrive as a Christian in an alien culture. Um, which touches on the central question of my life and Anne's life. What about the next generation? One of my heroes in the faith, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was martyred for his opposition to Hitler, wrote in a note to a friend of his from prison, he said, uh, the central question is not how we can sort of wiggle our way out of this situation, but how the next generation will live. Where Anne and I live in Berlin, some call Berlin the capital of world atheism, 63% of the population, hang on, 63% of the population are atheists. Uh, that figure rises to more than 70% for people under 35, which means that if you're going to talk with someone about Jesus, you're going to talk to an atheist. Um, the course that I'm going to be offering is kind of the fruit of those years of experience of interacting with skeptical Europeans. But the problem of the next generation is not over there or out there. It's right here, here in this room. Uh, over the last 30 years, there's been a tremendous growth in the number of people in the United States who claim to be of no religion. They do not want to identify in any way with any kind of uh, organized religion. Uh, they're called, I think rather cutely, the nuns. And um, they comprise, in Gen Z, which is people that have been born since 2000, perhaps as high as 40% of Gen Z want nothing to do really with organized religion. They're nuns. The transmission of the faith is sputtering. The challenge is not out there just in research land. It's at the kitchen table. It's with the people in our home. How to confront this problem has been something that Anna and I have been wrestling with for a long time, for 50 years in Germany. And I think there are two answers to this question. By the way, Germans count differently. That's one, and that's two. So I always have to think, oops, two. Uh, there are two aspects to the answer or the, the way we should confront this problem. The first is what is called honest answers to honest questions. It's listening, it's learning, it's a willingness to understand 
where people are at and where they're coming from. The course at the Biblical Study Center is kind of designed around my experience of honest answers to honest questions. The second, though, touches very directly on the scripture passage that we're going to be talking about this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. I believe the second aspect of dealing with this question of confronting the problem of those who want nothing to do with the church is a rebirth, a rebirth of Christ-modeled leadership. There's a tremendous skepticism about Christian leadership. Ah, tremendous skepticism. And this text in 1 Peter 5 that we're going to be looking at this morning addresses this issue of what leadership in Christ should look like, whether it's in the church or the family, men or women, there is a crisis of trust in Christian leadership, a deep crisis of trust. And 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, directly addresses this issue. What genuine leadership looks like in Christian community. In the first place, in the church, but then by extension, in the family. It lays out a radical model for leadership. In Germany, no good sermon can fail to quote Martin Luther, so I'll put that in right now. Um, Luther said that the family is a mini church. Woman, man, children, relating to one another in Christ. And so this crisis of trust is tremendously important to us individually and personally and in the circle of the mini church of our family. So let's start with verse one. Peter, you remember him. He's the one who denied Christ three times. Uh, he went on to turn back to Christ, was the great leader and preacher of the early church in Jerusalem. And he writes and he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Don't forget who's writing. A witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's writing to the elders. This uh, word in the original language is presbyteroi. Uh, Presbyterians get the word from there too. It basically means someone farther along in the faith who's helping lead. Someone out in front of the pack or the herd or the flock trying to help direct. And that can be any of us. It doesn't just have to be people officially in the office. He's a witness. And he's, Peter stresses his connection to this group, the elders. Uh, I want to say what I'm not going to talk about this morning, though. Uh, I believe there's major biblical and extra-biblical evidence for women elders in the early Christian church. Tucker and Tom and I have been talking about this for five years. Um, and when Tucker and I were talking about my sermon this morning, I mentioned to him I was going to spend about half an hour talking about women elders. And Tucker suddenly grew very quiet, and I said, joke, joke. Uh, 
this is a conversation we can have in this church. That's something I love about this church. But this isn't the time or place for that discussion. We're gonna talk about what leadership means in every context for Christians because we need a rebirth of Christ model leadership. So what were Peter's instructions to the elders? Verse two, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Peter is gonna be introducing here for, what, for his hearers and his listeners and readers was a very radical model of leadership. We're going to get to that. But I'd like to point out, first of all, he says, shepherd the flock of God. He didn't say shepherd your flock. This is God's flock. And this is not, shepherding is not a traditional model of leadership in Greek and Roman society. It was top down, top dog, middle dog, bottom dog. That's Roman culture and Roman society. This was the way of the world. But Peter says, shepherd. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But look where the flock is and where the leader is. He says, the flock of God that you're supposed to shepherd is among you. I don't know how much experience you have with sheep. I don't have a lot of experience with sheep. I have some experience with them. I used to, when I was growing up here in the area, we'd get out into uh, some remote areas and occasionally run into Basque sheep herders uh, with their, their caravan and we'd have a chance to talk with them if they spoke English. And uh, we didn't speak Basque, unfortunately. But sheep are smelly. They're proverbially dumb, but he says, you're in the middle of them. Don't try to lead from outside. The flock is around you, be among them. John chapter 21. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he met the disciples on the shore of the Lake of Galilee, and he had a conversation with Peter, a very intense personal conversation after Peter's betrayal. And he said three times, he asked him, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me, Peter? If so, feed my sheep. Tend for my lambs. So this is very intimate for Peter when he says, shepherd, take care of. So, all right, it's supposed to be shepherding, taking care of, caring for. What does that involve? Well, exercising oversight, the scripture says. What should the leader do? They exercise oversight. This is the word where we get the word Episcopal or uh, it's used twice in the New Testament. The other passage is in Hebrews 12. And it's interesting, what does it mean to exercise oversight? Well, it sounds kind of like you're the inspector. 
That's not it. Exercising oversight, this word means paying diligent attention. Focus. Peter says if you're in leadership, if you're leading in the family, in business, in a relationship, in the church, focus. Pay attention to these people that you're leading. Then not under compulsion. In other words, not because you've been pressured into it. Your heart needs to be in it. This is God's attitude in his relationship to us. Willingly, as God would have you. And then he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The incentive to leave is, lead is not for personal benefit. Financial, status, business contact, success. The scripture warns about being overly fond of money or recognition. This crisis of trust in Christian leadership is often associated with one of those problems. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Sometimes we have to be persuaded by the Lord. If you want to read in Exodus, you can read about how God got Moses' attention, but Moses wasn't too excited about leading. And God worked on him until he said yes. Verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. How to lead. Domineering has the idea of pushing down. Top dog, middle dog, bottom dog, remember? Peter says, no. No, that's not the pattern. Not domineering, but being an example to the flock is how to lead. Um, this word example, it's the word tupas. It means a type, a model. Uh, it's, it's very similar to our deep ideas of coaching, the best coaches, of, of helping by coaching. Um, this isn't a sermon on family life, but I'll give you something free uh, in this whole thing. Um, uh, we have two girls who are now grown and they have children, which are a, j a joy, of course, uh, grandchildren. But as each of them turned 13, we took them out individually to a nice meal and we explained to them, you're 13 now, in five years, you're going to have total responsibility for everything in your life. Finances, what you do, how you do it. They sort of turned white sometimes. Five years doesn't mean we'll abandon you, but in these five years, we're going to be trying to be coaches on the sideline. We can't play the game that you're called to in these five years, but we're gonna to try to stand on the sidelines and help coach you. We're gonna keep turning over more and more responsibility to you. It may not be as fast as some of your friends get privileges and responsibilities, but trust us. Let's talk about this if you have questions, but it's, it's going to happen. Five years from now, you're in the driver's seat. Train and release. 
not domineering over those in your charge, but coaching how to lead. And then Peter moves into a promise area in verse four. He says, when the chief shepherd, that's an interesting word. It, it's actually arch shepherd or arch shepherd. It's the, the, the real shepherd, the number one shepherd. He's going to appear. This is the promise and hope of Christians. The chief shepherd will return. And as in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, there will be one flock and one shepherd. There is a chief shepherd. He's the pattern, the example, the model. And he will return to gather his own. And then Peter says a remarkable thing. He says, in uh, the continuing that verse, he says, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. It's kind of a fun biblical study to look through the New Testament and read about crowns and what they are. Uh, don't think a coronation crown like Charles was crowned king a couple years ago or a year and a half ago. Uh, it's not a gold crown. It's an Olympic wreath of olive leaves. He says, not a fading crown. Olive leaves crumble after a while, you know. The wreath, eventually you just have to probably throw it out. But our Christian hope is that this is not the end. That what we're experiencing now and what we're going through is part of a trial, part of a process. A wreath, an award, a crown. Imagine, think Olympics. Imagine you're standing on the podium. You've won. And as you're standing on the podium, your national anthem is playing. The Star Spangled Banner and the flag of your nation is going up that middle pole. What a feeling. And a medal is put around your neck. And then, stepping down from the podium, you walk over to your master, Jesus, and you kneel at his feet, and you take the medal off, and you hand it to him, and you say, it really all belongs to you. You're responsible for everything. You're my Lord. This is the hope of God's people. This is their confident expectation. This is the reason that Christians were able to face terrible persecution, rejection, and torture at that time and through the ages. Faced with arrogant and boastful wrong, we can know this is not the end of the story. It's the witness of the martyrs. An old friend used to say, God didn't promise we'd be leading at halftime. God did not promise that we would be leading at halftime. But this doesn't mean that we should withdraw, piously resigned, because true hope battles for good, even against overwhelming odds. God promises a better future 
for this world. He's coming here, folks. What we do now is a witness and a sign. How we battle, take some time maybe before the end of the year and read the Sermon on the Mount. Those are battle orders for the people of God. This is how it's done. How we live with this hope. And finally, true hope isn't naive. True hope has tears. We weep honestly and deeply for what is lost. But, here's Peter again, read Acts 3. He talks about when Christ returns about the restoration of all things. Nothing that is truly good is ever forgotten by God. And what God remembers still exists. God does not forget. True hope isn't naive. We weep honestly and deeply for what is lost, but we know it will not last forever. That is the hope of the Christian. And then Peter commands something that is, it's hard for us to feel as radically, the radicalness of this as, as much as his, his, the folk that read his letter did. He said something really startling for Greeks and Romans. He said, likewise, verse five, you who are younger be subject to the elders. That's okay. The Romans were okay with that. But then he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This isn't the Roman idea of leadership. This is countercultural. Humility, willingly taking a lower place to raise another one person up, that was not a Greek or Roman virtue. What they wanted was recognition and honor. Blow your own horn as loud as you can. Someone humble is a loser. That's the Roman view. Humility, this willingness to take, to step down, to go lower, to raise another up was not a Roman or Greek virtue. Someone who was humble was considered crushed and worthless a shameful failure, actually worthy of mockery. Modesty was okay, you know, dignified restraint, but certainly not humility. In place of humility was recognition, honor, ideally publicly and prominently, but the best strategy was you need to blow your own horn. Arrogance, hubris, bigotry. Let me just give you one example from the time of the New Testament. The Emperor Augustus, the very first of the Roman emperors and dictators, he personally wrote a text. Let this kind of dissolve in your thoughts for just a moment. He personally wrote a text called The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. He was writing about himself. The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. And by his own order, this text was transcribed onto bronze tablets and then set up in front of his tomb. It listed 35 key areas of his achievements, topic by topic. 
It was pure boasting and self-aggrandizement. It's a complete contrast to the restraint of Christian humility, which the Romans just couldn't compute. C.S. Lewis points out, he said, humility doesn't mean a beautiful person considering themselves ugly or an intelligent person claiming they're dumb. It's forgetting yourself entirely. It's leaving yourself behind. But what can move people to forget themselves like that? It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Where did this idea of humility come from? Moving down from your rightful station to lift others up. Exactly a week ago in Germany, in Berlin and other places where Anne and I live, in Berlin, on the night before November 11th, thousands of school children paraded through their neighborhoods with, lit, with lanterns lit, with candles inside, or if their mother was particularly concerned with an electric light bulb. Um, but they paraded through the neighborhood carrying lanterns to celebrate the feast day of St. Martin. Well, who was this St. Martin? Well, he was a Roman soldier who became a Christian in the 400s and was baptized as an adult. And the most famous story about him says that one day after he began to follow Jesus, he came across a beggar who was dressed only in rags in the depth of winter. Martin cut his cloak in half with his sword and gave half to the freezing beggar. That night, Martin had a vision of Jesus wearing that half of his cloak. He became a bishop in Gaul. We know this from other sources in modern France. This ideal of the noble-born, the, the high-born, who takes off their coat to keep a beggar warm is not an ideal that the Romans really understood. It wasn't their model of greatness and leadership. Where did this model come from? This is repeated through history. I think of Amy Carmichael who rescued young children from temple prostitution in India. Uh, William and Catherine Booth, the founders, co-founders of the Salvation Army. But one of my heroes, another of my heroes is William Wilberforce. He was an upper class member of, Brit of the British Parliament in the late 1700s. He spent his entire life to abolish slavery. He was a good friend of Robert Pitt, who became Prime Minister of Great Britain. And most people think that Wilberforce could have been Prime Minister if he'd wanted to be. He could have had that office. But instead, he spent his entire life fighting for the poorest of the poor. He campaigned for anti-slavery bills time and time again, starting in 1791. They were defeated every time in spite of Pitt's support. And finally, on his deathbed in 1833, he got the news that the bill had been passed in the second reading in the House of Commons to free all slaves 
in the British Empire. Where does that kind of tenacity and humility come from? Certainly not Roman. Wilberforce was a clear and confessing follower of Christ. He was mentored by John Newton. Remember him? He's the one that wrote Amazing Grace. Newton himself had been converted to Christ after being the captain of a slave ship. Let that kind of dissolve in your thoughts for a little while. Newton became a leading abolitionist. And on his deathbed, he uttered his famous last words, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. Some historians believe that the reason England didn't experience a bloody revolution like France did was that a small but very significant number of the British upper class sacrificed their position, their social status and honor to humbly step down and help those beneath them. Where does this model of life come from? Certainly not from the Romans or the Greeks. What is the greatest example in all of human history of someone immensely great with unlimited dignity, status, and honor stepping down and stooping low to raise others up? The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I'd like you to think about that contrast. He was rich, and he became poor. That is the model of humility, which was so countercultural for the Romans, but captured the imagination of the world, ultimately. A friend of ours uh, is a professor for Chinese studies. Every single hospital in the People's Republic of China has a cross somewhere on it. There was a film made on Chinese television. What is the, the symbol on these hospitals? It's the cross of Christ. The medical system was begun by Christian missionaries. Paul explains in the first chapter of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that for the Romans, Jesus was the ultimate loser. He wrote in his first letter, he said, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. God chose what's low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast or parade their achievements in the presence of God. The cross and crucifixion were so horrible that literally Roman society considered it unspeakable. Well-bred Romans did not even mention crucifixion in any kind of public context. It was unspeakable. It was never mentioned. 
Yet, the cross became the symbol of what true leadership is all about. As Christians, Peter writes in chapter two, he said, we need to consciously walk in Christ's footsteps. Christ suffered for you, he said, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I want you to feel with me. St. Martin, Wilberforce, Amy Carmichael, William and Catherine Booth, these are our people. This is our bloodline. God's people are here to bless the world, to give the love of Jesus. And you know, the early witnesses and martyrs had a very deep secret in their hearts. Paul wrote about it to his young friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. He said, if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Shortly after that, uh, history tells us that Paul was executed uh, by the emperor Nero. Story over. <laughs> no, that's only halftime. Today we name our sons Paul and our daughters Pauline and our dogs Nero. <laughs> we have a noble heritage. It's only halftime. Whatever we suffer now, whatever where we return grace for abuse. It doesn't mean being softies. It means being firm in the power of Christ to reflect the character of God. We have a noble heritage we must never forget. And we must never forget whatever happens to us, this is only halftime. God did not promise we would be leading halftime but he did promise that we would reign with him if we endured